What if I told you that the reason human beings need freedom is because they're just too depraved to govern each other? Or that the reason that we need racial quotas is because of the inevitability of human racism? These are positions held in our society today by people of very different political affiliations, and yet, if you think about it, they are united by a common thread, a common idea, the idea that there is inherent moral imperfection in human nature. This is, of course, the idea of original sin. In one of her letters, Ayn Rand writes that if she were to select only one idea as the most depraved ever conceived by man, it would be the doctrine of original sin. Today we're going to discuss how Rand understood this long-standing religious and philosophical notion, why she had such a, and, and why she had such a negative evaluation of it. We'll discuss the implications that embracing original sin has for one's life, and the expressions of the idea that Ayn Rand saw in her time, how it, and how it continues to shape our culture and politics today. Welcome to New Ideal, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Bayer. I'm a fellow at the Institute. With me today is Ricardo Pinto, uh, who is one of our junior fellows. This is also the first time he's appearing on New Ideal. So uh, welcome, Ricardo. Hi, Ben. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So, Ricardo, to get us started, let's just first do a little bit of brushing up on just the very idea of original sin itself. What is this idea? Yes, the idea of original sin basically refers to the notion that all human beings are sinful by nature. All human beings are sinful by nature. Of course, if we had in this room 10 theologians, historians, or philosophers, nine out of those 10 would disagree about this definition. But I think regardless of how you define the concept, whether it's a condition of, of sinfulness, of depravity, or merely an inclination of, uh, to this sinfulness, I think the core of this idea is that there is something inherently sinful, or you can call it evil, in human nature, in the human character, that pervades our actions, our lives, our motivation. So Ricardo, this is, the idea of original sin is one that I associate most with, uh, with Christian religion. Maybe say a little more about how it comes up in Christianity, but also comment on, is it, is it confined to Christianity? I say that this idea is distinctive to Christianity because virtually all mythologies, all religions, have some version of a story of that involves some god or some gods condemning either humanity or whole cities for the punishments of an ancestors. Right? You can think about the Greek gods imposing, in, imposing a punishment to a city for that involves something like making offerings or making sacrifices to the altar, etc. But I think what is relevant to these stories is that 
they are typically not an issue of justice. They are not presented as a just punishment from the gods, but it's typically an exertion of their power. They're typically arbitrary. They're making this punishment because, not because humanity did something necessarily wrong, but it did something wrong to them. And perhaps what's more important to original thing is that these punishments in other mythologies, in these punishments, the individual is subject, but not morally responsible of the sin. And I think original sin, the claim of original sin is a different one. On the one hand, it is an issue of justice. The fact that we're fallen and that our nature is somehow corrupted, it's a direct expression of God's justice, of God's love, of God's mercy. And second, you are individually, morally accountable for the sins of your forebear. Of course, they have some ways where they try to explain this, but I think that's what makes original sin a distinctive Christian doctrine. I think you're right that of the major religions, this is obviously, it's obviously Christianity that stresses this idea most distinctively. It's also important, though, that what you said at the beginning, that it's an interpretation of Genesis. Uh, it's an interpretation by Christian scholars, not one that uh, Hebrew scholars even had, necessarily. Uh, and it's one that's informed by uh, more than just the text. Uh, it's informed by philosophical ideas, especially uh, Greek philosophical ideas, ideas from Plato, uh, and other historical factors, some of which we're going to talk about, that, that make this more general than just uh, Christian scripture. And you'll, we'll especially see that, I think, later in the episode when we talk about ways in which this idea has influenced people who, are, who don't think of themselves as, not only, uh, they don't think of themselves as Christian, they don't even think of themselves as religious. Uh, so there are... If there are influences and motivations that go into this doctrine that are that are far beyond uh, the uh, the specifics of a religious uh, scripture. Uh, but Ricardo, uh, so we, I think we put the basics of the idea on the table. Let's now cut to the chase. I mean, what did what did Ayn Rand think of this idea, and why? She had a very negative reaction to this idea of original sin. She completely repudiated the thinking and the implications that the idea has for, for everything. And I think one relevant place where this comes up is in her novel, Atlas Shrug, where the main hero, I, I won't spoil it to you, but the main hero, when they, he's giving his reason why he decided to quit the world and to pursue his, uh, moral revolution. The reason he gives is that he refused to be born with, okay. The reason he, he gave is that he refused to be born with any original sin. 
instead of talking about other factors like he's living in a society that demands a sacrifice from him or that he's being subject to force he names original sin as the main cause why he decided to strike and i think it's in atlas shrugged in the main speech of the novel that i where you can find the locus of Rand's argument against original sin. So we have a quote about that. Do we want to put it, put it on? Yes. I read, a sin without volition is a slap at morality and an insolent contradiction in terms. That which is outside the possibility of choice is outside the province of morality. If man is evil by birth, he has no will, no power to change it. If he has no will, he can neither be good nor evil. A robot is amoral. To hold, as man sings, a fact not open to his choice is a mockery of morality. To hold man's nature as he's seen is a mockery of nature. To punish him for a crime he committed before he was born is a mockery of justice. To hold him guilty in a matter where no innocent exists is a mockery of reason. To destroy morality, nature, justice, and reason by means of a single concept is a feat of evil hardly to be matched. Yet, that is the root of your code. And this takes us, I think, so, some distance in understanding that that line that I quoted from her letter at the top of how if she had to pick a single idea that was the most depraved, uh, it would be this one. But let's uh, let's understand more of her reasons for the various repudiations she just she, she just mentioned. For instance, this idea that morality, sorry, that original sin is a mockery of morality. Can you say more about why she thinks that? Yeah, it, that's interesting because her claim is not solely that original sin imposes an irrational moral demand on human beings, on people, but that it reverts, it destroys the very concept of morality. And I think what you see here is that in her conception, morality, if it is to be meaningful, applies only to an individual's own choices. It applies only to what it's in his power to discern, to judge, to decide. But if you're putting sin or an inclination of evil as a feature of his character, then at best that would represent a natural fact about man, not subject to judgment, but not a moral quality, not a moral issue that he should be condemned for. I think you can see 
more evidence of why this doctrine amounts to a negation of morality uh, from the way that it's used. I mean, so I think what you've just explained is why it negates the very concept of morality at its root, because morality is about guiding choices. If you're saying you're evil about something you didn't even choose, it's, it's just an incoherent idea. But notice, for instance, how this gets used in the hands, for instance, of uh, anybody who ever says nobody's perfect, whenever they do something wrong, they're in effect saying, yeah, it was wrong, but nobody's perfect. You can't expect me to do the right thing. Uh, well, isn't the right thing exactly what you should expect people to do? And that one particularly galling example of, of this is, is in Catholicism, where everyone's expected to go to regular confession, and mm. you're expected to come with sins. You're expected to tell the priest what you did wrong. And if you come and you say, I, I haven't had any sins, uh, especially if it's your first time when you know, you're presumably built up a lot of them, they'll tell you, that's the sin of pride. Uh, to think that you haven't been a sinner. And so you've done the wrong thing in thinking that you could have been free of sins. Uh, and the mistake there is failing to recognize the fact of original sin. And uh, Catholics will even, somewhat cynically, I'm sure, uh, make use of this by uh, doing things that, that, according to their code, are wrong, doing it knowing that it's wrong according to their code, and then kind of rationalizing to themselves, well, nobody's perfect, I'll just confess later, it would be, a sin, it would be the sin of pride if, if I didn't have any, uh, anything to confess anyway. And I think yeah. that that's probably acknowledged as a, a cynical use of it by the church, but then it's interesting also how the church itself, in effect, uses something like that excuse itself. Uh, or, or did use it uh, when they were trying to uh, make sense of the Catholic sex abuse crisis. It's it well, priests are human beings too. All human beings are sinners. Uh, and they didn't say you can't blame us <laughs> because they know that that would sound absurd. But look through the, the commentary on this and you will find constant reference to the fact in effect, nobody's perfect. And I think that'll, we'll have more to say about the kind of psychological function of the doctrine later in connection with that. But it's, there's so much here to say about how it's a real negation of just the very idea of morality as no, morality is what you expect people to do. And it's, uh, there isn't this kind of get out of uh, hell free card. Of course, it's not supposed to be that either because they say, in effect, some people are damned for, are doomed to go to hell. Uh, but, Ricardo, it's, it's, it's so absurd on face to say that people should be judged or evaluated by uh, some sin they can't help but make or by some sin that some ancestor of theirs committed that the, the advocates of this idea have to work overtime to make sense of it and to try to explain the worst aspects of the absurdity away. What are some of the ways they do this? Yeah, that's interesting because one of the issues that 
theologians and the church as a whole had to contend with is they needed to make sense of this doctrine. They needed to make sense of how this mechanism was transmitted to humanity and was applicable to us, to the men who live now today. So you have these attempts to, uh, to make sense of how Adam's seeing applies to uh, today. So for example, there is this theory that is usually called federalism. And the idea is basically that Adam was the federal head of humanity. He was the representative of humanity. And therefore, the sin he committed, he committed in the name of humanity. And that's why we can be held accountable to his crime. Another uh, attempt to, to try to rationalize this uh, uh, original thing is the view that, yes, Adam was neither your representative, nor you were, you, neither you were in him. But if you were in his position, you would have committed the same crime. Therefore, you can be held accountable and guilty of original sin. But let, let me know your thoughts on this, but I, I don't see this as convincing explanations of, of a supposed original crime that we're accountable to. They all fail to explain rationally why we should be viewed as sinful or as descendants of Adam or as accountable for his sins. And Rand says something very interesting. This is in her letters in this regard. She writes that at one point, that man cannot be held guilty by potentiality, by potentiality, but only by the choices he makes. And she adds, if the whole of the human race, except one, chooses evil, this cannot make the one guilty to. Do you want to say more about this? What, what does she mean uh, uh, specifically about this idea of uh, potentiality when it comes to uh, the evil one may or may, may not do? May I assume the reason that you brought that up is because if it's a it's a very good response to the idea that you're somehow guilty of original sin if you would have done what he did in that situation. Because the point remains, well, maybe I could have done it, maybe I even would have done it, I would have done it, but I didn't do it. And there's a difference between yeah. what you have the potential to do and what you actually did. And And this distinction between the potential and the actual is one that, I mean, originally comes from Aristotle, one that Rand makes a uh, great use of in her uh, critique, for instance, of the religious case against abortion rights, because they will run potential and actual humanity together in saying that the, uh, the embryo or the fetus has rights. So there's, that's, their running of those two very importantly different concepts together is just one of the many uh, metaphysical errors that are at the heart of this position. But there's, there's another one. Um, and especially I think at, uh, that you see in the 
presumption of what about what people would have done even in different circumstances. There's the kind of confidence and certainty that they have about what people would do or that pe what people will do uh, goes to the issue of free will versus determinism. And I know you wanted to say more about that. That's the core of her critique, in fact. That original sin implies a total rejection of free will, which she sees as fundamental to morality. And this is pretty clear in the most extreme, consistent cases. For example, in Calvinism, there is this theory of total depravity, where they say that human beings are completely incapable of doing the good and of loving God, and they are completely dependent on grace. But not all Christian denominations accept this, because the problem that uh, they face is that on the one hand, they need to have some conception of freedom. They need to have some conception of human beings as sinners or not sinners, right? They need to be individually responsible to what they do. But on the other, you cannot give the whole credit to them because all that is good, all that is worthy, their merit is due to God. So they usually, uh, the typical maneuver is that they try to qualify original sin as a tendency or as an inclination to sinning, to evil, Now, the question is whether this is a good strategy or whether this uh, is effective. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, number, but let me, let me start by sharing Ayn Rand's own response to what I take to be this strategy. Uh, she confronts it directly. She says, and this is right after the paragraph we read previously from Gold's speech, she says, or she has Galt say, do not hide behind the cowardly evasion that man is born with free will, but with a tendency to evil. Free will saddled with a tendency is like a game with loaded dice. It forces man to struggle through the effort of playing, to bear responsibility and pay for the game, but the decision is weighted in favor of a tendency he had no power to escape. If the tendency is of his choice, he cannot possess it at birth. It is not of his choice. His will is not free. And you might be wondering what exactly she's, what's the tendency supposed to be here that believers in original sin have? And, and why is it still such a offense against the concept of free will in Rand's view? Well, my guess is that the tendency they're talking about is what they uh, sometimes call uh, concupiscence or, or lust, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, uh, all the kinds of temptations to sin in their conception of sin, and we'll talk more about that conception too later, that they think we're confronted with on a, a daily ongoing basis. And of course, many of the things that they think are sinful, Ayn Rand does not, and that's one, that's the, that's the separate discussion we'll have, but uh, just the idea that whatever your conception of sin is, that you're necessarily tempted 
to engage in it on a regular basis is something that she thinks itself is uh, incompatible with the concept of free will. And that's because she thinks that real free will means not simply direct control over your actions, which is the idea that they are playing on and distinguishing, saying, well, we, ha we can still control our actions, we just are tempted not to act according to them. And she's a philosopher who, who said that man is a being of self-made soul. And what that means is that you have control over, over the, the profile of your soul, not just over what you do with it. That is to say, you have uh, direct control, she thinks, over the choice to think or not to think. But as a result of the choices to think or not to think that we make over the course of our lives, we have uh, indirect control over the content of our beliefs, over the values that we choose, the feelings that we feel in response to the way our world treats the objects of our values, uh, and consequently over the content of our character. That, that's what she refers to as, as, as our soul, as, the sum total of our beliefs and values and feelings. And so if somebody believes that something's wrong to do, if they, if, if for example, they think that uh, uh, lying is wrong and they value the truth, well, once they've put that value into practice enough, once they've really thought about why the truth is a good thing and the delusion of other people and fooling them and relying on their ignorance uh, is a bad thing, that person's not going to be tempted to lie uh, in the long run. They're, they're going to want to tell the truth. They're going to want to uh, appeal to the best in people and value their knowledge and not value their ignorance. And they're not even going to be tempted. Now, it's not always the kind of thing you can just snap your fingers and uh, change your feelings in the short term, but you do have control over it. And so the idea that you're just inevitably weighted down by this tendency to be tempted to lie, she thinks, is itself an expression of uh, the negation of free will. And so that's why I think she's still calling it a, a kind of evasion. Um, but one other thing I should say about what you said, Ricardo, because what you said is important that the uh, there are differences in, in the way the different denominations think about this idea of free will. Some of them are more or less overt in their negation of it. Uh, but you mentioned the Calvinist doctrine of total depravity, and it's, it's worth pointing out that that Calvinist view and the, and the broader Protestant Lutheran view that comes out of the Reformation, uh, it, it happens for a reason. It happens because uh, the... The, the, the Reformation Christians, in effect, are looking at the Renaissance Church and they're, and they're looking at uh, people who have rediscovered humanist ideals of human perfection and who are trying to perfect themselves more in the Renaissance. The, a symbol of this is the controversy over indulgences where people think by building beautiful churches they can gain some kind of favor with God in heaven and thereby buy their way into the afterlife. And uh, Luther and others in this period say, you, you don't have that kind of control over your salvation. To think that you can perfect yourself, to think that you can earn merit in God's eyes, that's the sin of pride. 
And so what we need to do basically is in effect go back to Augustine, and Luther was an Augustinian friar, so it's, it's not an accident that he basically takes Augustine's idea of original sin, puts it right back at the center of, at this point, Protestant Christianity, and uh, says, no, you don't control your virtue or your, uh, your salvation, only God does, you don't have free will. And that's what leads to the doctrine of uh, predestinationism, which is the most explicit and consistent denial of free will that you, you saw uh, not even quite as explicit in Augustine himself, uh, because Augustine himself tries to give yeah. a watered-down definition of freedom that uh, nominally reconciles it with original sin, but not really. Okay, so, so Ricardo, I think that sums up a lot about why Ayn Rand regarded this doctrine as a, as a negation of the, the very concept of morality insofar as it, it treats us as uh, deterministic cogs who, don't, who can't use morality to guide their lives. But obviously this doctrine has a lot of other implications, any other area of human life where morality is used to govern uh, our thinking and where we need guidance is, is going to be affected. And I think that's especially in the case, that's especially the case in culture and in politics. So uh, what are some ways in which this doctrine has impact in contemporary politics, in, in politics that were contemporary to Ayn Rand's period when she's thinking about this and evaluating? What, what did she have to say about this? Yeah, she had a lot to say about the presence of original singing her political culture and I think the main or one of the most important movement where she saw the idea having a central role was in the conservative movement of it of her time especially of in the 60s and 70s where she criticized the conservatives who appealed to what she called the argument from depravity basically this idea that because human beings are sinful, no one had the right or the authority to subject his fellows to any arbitrary political power. That's the argument that conservatives of the time relied on and appealed to as a justification for capitalism and for freedom. And the flip side of this is that because uh, modern modernity rejected original sin through uh, their revolutionary idealistic utopias. They rejected the idea that all men are sinful because they did this. They devolved into totalitarianism, into dictatorship. So original sin is the best bulwark, say, said the conservative of, of the time against tyranny. Now, she had a lot to say about this, but I think one important aspect of her critique, which I think is on point, is that this is an example of complete historical ignorance. There is a long story to original sin, uh, especially in, in modernity, from the period you were just talking about, the, the Renaissance on. And if there is something, one idea that unites virtually all the Enlightenment thinkers is the rejection of original sin. 
enlighten the liberalism of the Enlightenment, as it was developed by John Locke, John Milton, Thomas Paine, was a direct reaction to the idea that we can be held guilty or accountable for a crime we didn't commit, and that we have the sufficient freedom, rationality, and sovereignty to be authors of our own lives. And I think this is, in part, the perspective Rand is drawing from. I think she had a positive view of, of this tradition, which, she, of course, she had many disagreements with them. But I think one uh, characteristic feature that you find in her defense of capitalism is that it is a political system for essentially rational beings, for beings who have free will, and for beings who have to act in the world, achieve values, and of course receive all the products of, of their effort and, and, and their worth. In contrast, Original sin has historically been used to justify oppression. For example, the main, the most effective critic of the French Revolution, not Edmund Burke, which conservative love, but it's doubtful he even accepted original sin. I'm thinking of Joseph de Mestre, thought about original sin as the reason why men should be subjected to authority. Men should be subjected to a king. He claimed that they were too wicked to be left free. So there is a connection, and you find this in Brandt's political theory, between free will and freedom, free will and capitalism. And on the contrary, that dictatorship, dictatorships, tyranny, often rely on a, a negation of this, on a deterministic view of human beings, such as the one original thing pushes. Yeah, that's a really important point, and one just very clear illustration of this is uh, Augustine himself, who of course is the original champion of original sin, and who uses it to justify the institution of slavery. He famously, in, in the uh, City of God, he says it is better to be a slave to man than to be a slave to sin. Uh, and even though he doesn't really like slavery, he still thinks that it's necessary uh, as a way of dealing with our sinful nature and the, the sinful ones are the ones who are then punished as the most sinful ones, because we're all sinners. The most sinful ones are the ones who are then punished uh, as slaves. And yeah, it's important that the Enlightenment critics, not only of slavery, but defenders of liberty more generally, were in one way or another, to one extent or another, critics of the original sin. They, in one way or another, embraced what's called the Pelagian heresy, which was the uh, doctrine that Augustine tried to read out of the church and was instrumental in condemning as a heresy, but which crept back in especially during the Enlightenment, and if you're interested in this, uh, there's a very good book that came out just a few years ago 
called The Theology of Liberalism uh, by Eric Nelson, which basically runs through these different Enlightenment figures and shows how in one way or another they were, they were critics of this, uh, of this original sin idea. Um, of course, so you're describing this in the context of the, the conservative argument for freedom from depravity, the idea that uh, people are too sinful to govern each other, and that's why we need freedom. You mentioned, of course, yeah, well, doesn't that also make us too sinful to be left free? Uh, and the interesting thing is if you look at the more modern conservatives today, I think they've realized this. They've, more and more of them are giving up on this argument for freedom from depravity and are coming to embrace the argument uh, for statism and for government control from depravity. I think that's very much at the heart of what the new national conservative movement is doing, and sometimes they're quite explicit about uh, why they think it depends on original sin. And to further point to the fact that this is not just a, this doctrine doesn't only influence people who think of themselves as religious or think of themselves as Christian, there's also evidence that it is operative, if not explicitly, uh, on the other side of the political spectrum, on the left. And Ricardo, what, where do we see this on the left and where do we see Ayn Rand critiquing it on the left? She comments on this issue in many places, but I think her main article here, her main essay is Moral Inflation in the Ayn Rand letter, where she comments about where she comments about racial egalitarians who try to introduce some form of affirmative action policies that try to judge individual merits, individual worth according to their ancestors, either their ancestors suffering, their ancestors crimes. And, and you find this idea still today Think about the way people use the phrase America's original sin, right? And it has the all the elements. Yeah, exactly. It has all the elements of uh, that we see in the Christian doctrine, of course, with difference, but there is there is a primal evil, which is slavery. There is a means of transmission social institutions, institutionalized racism, and the view that the individual, that human beings are helpless to this, that regardless of their best efforts, their best character, they will internalize some version of, of, of this thing, of, of this social crime. And this is an idea that she, especially in the 70s, she saw taking hold onto the American uh, mind, although she, she still thought that the American people were too good to accept that. But the attempt to instill guilt uh, through the notion that you are the product of an essentially evil, vicious system that you can do nothing about. Yeah, I think it's really important to bring this out. And I should mention that 
the idea that there's a kind of original sin operating in contemporary, quote-unquote, anti-racist uh, egalitarianism. This is one of the themes of John McWhorter's recent book, Woke Racism. And I mean, he cites it along a number of other uh, dimensions of the movement that give evidence that it's a new form of religion. Uh, I, and I wrote about this in a, in a recent article talking about McWhorter's book, which I'll, I'll flag at the end. Um, but one other thing I wanted to add about this is that, because somebody might say, especially because many of the so-called anti-racists who champion this idea, especially because they're not themselves religious, or at least not many of them are religious, not all of them are religious, is this really the same thing as original sin? Because they might say, look, they're not saying everybody is a white supremacist. Uh, they're only saying that all white people are white supremacists in spite of their intentions because of the fact that they are complicit in a structure of systemic racism that's benefited them and their ancestors over the years. Uh, they're not saying that, uh, that members of minority groups are the same kind of sinner. And that's true. So it's not universal to the human race. That particular characteristic is not universal to the human race. But there is something that they think is, and this is important to bring out, because it's still the case in this worldview that everyone, regardless of their uh, ethnic affiliation, is nonetheless uh, a a victim of the fact that they cannot see beyond their membership in that race. Everyone is seeing the world through race-colored glasses. You can't escape that. You, you can't, if you're a black person, you can't help but see the world as a black person. If you're a white person, you can't help but see the world as a white person. And all of the different uh, preferences and ideologies and biases that that is supposed to bring with it because of the nature of the systemic uh, of the the nature of systemic racism and the nature of various social constructions that have been imposed on us. And so, uh, it may not be that everyone is a white supremacist or a, a, and any kind of supremacist, but everyone is still a racist if we take that term literally to mean somebody who sees the world through racial lenses, and that's in spite of or uh, despite any choices they might, they might make to the contrary. Someone might practice very objective thinking. They might think that they see and judge people uh, for their choices and their character and not for their, uh, their membership in some ethnic group. But the contemporary egalitarian view is no matter, despite your best efforts, you're inevitably biased one way or the other. And so it amounts to kind of epistemological original sin that you can't help but break, you, you cannot break out of these, these racial ethnic glasses that, you've, that you're looking at the world through. And I think that is still very much in the same vein and, and at the end of the day very influenced still by some of those old religious ideas. Uh, it's it's uh, important, and I bring this out in my, in my article, that they still see pride as a sin, and what they're doing, in effect, is demanding humility, that people shouldn't and can't have intellectual pride in their own judgment and their own conclusions about the world. 
And that's why they need to recognize their nature as sinners, epistemological sinners, and, and be humble and, uh, in effect, bow before uh, the, uh, the doctrine of uh, racial egalitarianism that they propose. And, and the problem with this view, of course, is that the problem with racism as such is that it says that people's character is determined by their group membership. Uh, and it negates the fact that we, do, we all do have free will. The, problem with, the real problem with racism is that it pretends that we don't. Um, so to wrap this part of our discussion up, Ricardo, do you want to say a little more about the broader point that Rand is making about the requirements of a free society in connection with this question of what's wrong with original sin? Yes. She argues that a proper defense of a free society needs to be stronger. And that if we are to preserve freedom, if we are to promote the values of a free society, we don't need to reject the ideal. We don't need to reject the attempt of why not perfecting humanity? although she doesn't use um, those terms too much, but she certainly speaks of the ideal. And that's what she saw, especially in, when, in her critique of the conservatives, that in claiming that the totalitarians held some notion of perfectibility, some notion of the ideal on their side, but that human nature was too wicked, they were devaluing the, the ideal and they were conceding reason and logic to their side. But, and, and that's why they think very incompetent to, to make an effective critique of left-wing movement. They, they, critis, they, criticize, they criticize their view of human nature, which is mistaken, but they don't dare to criticize the morality that they share. But for Rand, the foundations of a free society don't come from the broken nature of human life. They don't come from our flaws, our imperfections. Society and its laws are not an attempt to restrain human beings but the institutions, the conditions that are necessary for rational, sovereign, self-sufficient being to achieve their values. She has a positive conception of political freedom that involves a vision of human beings, of beings of self-made soul, of being who can build their characters, build their life, their careers and ambitions, and society is but an aspect, an, an, an element, the institutions that will protect his freedom to do that. But they are not a restraint. So good. I think that tells us more about where Rand's rejection of original sin is coming from her whole very different conception of human nature. What are the 
what are the alternative views of human nature that this doctrine is rooted in, the, the philosophical premises that, that motivate it in the first place? That's interesting. So I think one principle at work here is a certain view of the relationship, the mind of a body and the body. And I think that the doctrine of original sin relies on the idea that there is a disconnection between your reason and your emotions or your will and your actions. And I think that a good example of this is in Augustine, in his confessions, you see a broken man, a man who cannot control his sexual desires, a man who can not, that despite of his best knowledge, he's not in charge of what he ends up doing, what he ends up choosing. He can claim to love something, but he cannot make himself delight on it. And he needs grace. In this view, you need grace. You need the aid of God to make yourself delight on that something. And I think original sin in all its versions cash in on this idea that there is a disconnection, a fundamental break in yourself between your mind and your body and your desires. Yeah, I think that's, that's important. And the, it's funny because if you, if you, if you read enough Augustine, you eventually get to places in the city of God, for instance, where he tries to argue that he doesn't have this basic antipathy to the body that you'd think he has when he has made such a big deal about how sinful it is and how lustful it is and how you can't control it. Uh, and his rationale is, well, the body was created by God, so it must be good. Uh, so he's got this nominal uh, claim to value the body. But when you dig just a little deeper than that, you realize this is not much of an excuse uh, because one of the things he says is that uh, the reason that we have all the terrible lust and for uh, lust for sex and domination that we have today is because of Adam's sin. So it's uh, it's something still that's in the nature of our body as we have it today. Uh, it's just that we're being punished for Adam's sin, uh, which if Adam hadn't made that sin, if, if, if he hadn't uh, eaten the apple, chosen knowledge from the tree of good and evil, then he, the body would have been perfect. It would have suffered no lust. We would have uh, been able to sexually pro uh, procreate uh, without having any lust. We would just uh, will to uh, elevate our <laughs> sexual members just by snapping our finger. Uh, it's, it's, of course, completely bizarre. Uh, but uh, he, he still thinks that the body in its current condition uh, because of that choice is corrupted. And here, of course, he's, he's influenced probably very heavily by uh, the, I think, 14 years he spent as a member of the Manichaean cult, 
uh, before his conversion to Christianity, which has this really uh, uh, dichotomous view of reality. There's the dark, the dark, the forces of darkness and the forces of light, and some people are more dominated by one or the other, and the ones who are dominated by darkness are dominated by their bodies. The ones who are dominated by light are the ones who are uh, the elect, who are um, free from the urges of the body. So this, this mind-body dualism is very deep. Um, but one of the things that that point I made about how the corruption of the body is our punishment for Adam's sin, one of the things that that brings out is uh, another part of, another aspect of Augustine's thought where he thinks the corruption really comes from. Uh, because what's the nature of, what's the real nature of Adam's sin, according to Augustine, Ricardo? Intellectual pride. Why is that? Right. I thought it was that's just you wanted to have... eat the tasty apple. Right. Yeah, that's when I have question about whether it's original sin is motivated by a disdain of the body or of the physical, because I think the issue is broader. As I understand it, is a disdain of anything that makes us human, which includes, of course, our bodily capacities, particularly sexual desire, but chiefly our capacity to reason, our capacity of judgment, of making choices for themselves and being emancipated from God eventually. So I think that's, that's a very revealing identification on his part that it's intellectual pride precisely what uh, dooms humanity and, and Adam, of course. And Adam's pride is, here it's, it's really, the symbolism is important, right? Because it's not just any old apple that he wants to eat. It is a, it's fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he wants to know the difference between right and wrong and, and in that respect, be like a god. And so he's challenging his creator's uh, claim to be the only one who gets to know these things. Uh, and that's, that's an act of intellectual pride. And Augustine was quite consistent about this. He didn't only condemn uh, this act of intellectual pride. Throughout his works, he talks about lust of the eyes, of wanting to know the truths of the world. Uh, here he's drawing from St. Paul, who was out against the wisdom of the world. And so the whole Greek philosophical tradition, the Greeks who thought that they could uh, figure out codes of values for themselves and figure out how to pursue their own happiness and perfect themselves with this knowledge, uh, he accuses them of the sin of intellectual pride. And so uh, that's definitely at the heart of, of this doctrine. And there's one more thing, especially since we're talking about codes of values and the codes of values that the Greeks wanted to formulate were ones oriented toward the pursuit of their own happiness. They weren't elevating uh, the virtue of humility as, as the most important moral vir virtue, as, as Augustine does. And I think that's an expression of a very different orientation toward morality. Uh, that the original sin view has. We've been hinting at this by saying like, their conception of what a sin is is certainly not Ayn Rand's conception. So t say more here, Ricardo. Yeah, I think 
the morality of altruism is a big factor in that benefits her original sin or the promotion of the doctrine. Um, of course, Ayn Rang is known as the biggest critic of altruism, which she characterized as the that code that demands the surrender of itself to others as a major moral duty. And that includes surrendering your desires, your values, your wealth, your enjoyment for the alleged benefit of someone else. But any person with a minimal amount of self-esteem will soon come into conflict with this morality. Any person that has any worldly value, any worldly joy, will soon realize that that piece of joy, that sphere of happiness he has found on earth, he needs, he should need to sacrifice for the benefit of others, as the morality of altruism uh, demands him to. So, original sin is a perfect rationalization for people not to take morality seriously. Original sin is a perfect rationalization for hypocrisy, for being just good enough, for committing just a little to morality, but not to the point that you, that you will surrender every of your value, every of your joys, as morality demands. And I think that's being its historical role in a sense that original thing has helped to perpetuate altruism because you are not blaming your code you're not blaming the idea that your duty is to sacrifice to order no you blame human nature human nature is that that should be damned Human nature is wicked, human nature is broken. And that's what is expected from you, to fail, to not achieve, to not be fully moral. And that's okay, says original sin. So I think there is a reciprocal relation here. When you have a morality that imposes an irrational impossible demand to achieve on earth, on this life, you need some kind of doctrine, some kind of theory that tells you that that's the way human beings are. That's human nature. Yeah, I think one way of making this point is to say that invoking original sin, invoking the, especially when it comes in the form of nobody's perfect, we're all sinners, is a way of invoking the idea that there's this opposition between theory and practice. Well, it's good to be an ascetic monk who takes a vow of poverty and chastity in theory, but practically we, we just, we all can't do that, practically speaking. Uh, and so this helps illustrate how what's really at the root of not only original sin, but also that 
correlated theory practice dichotomy is a certain conception of what it means to be good in theory. Uh, in this case, the, the altruist conception, the, the doctrine of self-sacrifice's conception says what's good is renunciation. It's th and so if in fact that's your view of what is good, you will find that you can't practice it consistently and perfectly. Uh, and when you run up against reality and realize that if you want to stay alive, you actually have to think and produce and, uh, and consume your products of your thought, then you'll, you'll feel guilty because that's not what the good is according to your view. Your, your view is that the good is only giving things up. And so to the extent that you stay alive, you are cheating on your view of the good. And so then you need to have some explanation for that, some reconciliation. Why can't we achieve what we, by our own lights, is the good? Well, we must just be sinners. We must just be incapable of choosing uh, what's actually good. And of course, you see then, uh, as a result of it, the idea that uh, there's, a, there's a virtue in compromise. This is what leads to philosophical pragmatism. Ultimately, it leads to the idea that there's something detached uh, from reality about moral principles. And so this further undermines actual respect for uh, morality, because what, what is the point of a morality that you can't actually practice? So uh, just to wrap things up, what do you think motivates this idea? What do you think is behind, psychologically, original sin? It's a really fascinating question, and I should mention I gave, I mean, one thing that motivates it is all of the things that motivate the doctrines that we just talked about. So what motivates the moral, uh, the morality of altruism? What motivates the mind-body dichotomy? And uh, I gave a whole lecture uh, last year on the psychology of altruism. It was called Ayn Rand's Genealogy of Altruism, where I talk about a lot of this. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, it's motivated by, uh, by authoritarianism. You accept it because your, your, your elders, your teachers told you to believe it, and you're afraid to disagree with them. It's motivated by a kind of cowardice where you are trying to appease other people by showing them that you're really doing something for their sake, not for your own sake. Uh, and the worst forms of it, I think, are motivated by uh, a kind of power lust, where you can, by convincing other people to sacrifice, uh, not only materially, but by believing a doctrine that has no rational basis, sacrifice intellectually, you are able to exercise power over them. And uh, th there's a lot more to say about that, but there's a lot, I think, that's also related to that behind just the very doctrine of original sin itself. I mean, the most obvious motivation to speak of is the way, some of the things we've already talked about, about the way that it allows you to excuse evil, to be able to say, yeah, I, I did the wrong thing, but hey, we all do it, and so you can't really blame me. I was pre-programmed by my birth to be a sinner, so I shouldn't really feel that bad about it, and you shouldn't blame me, and you shouldn't punish me. So there's obvious uh, 
rationalization power that the doctrine of original sin has. But then also by the same token as the point I made about altruism, it also has a great power, a great potential to serve as a rationalization for exercising power over people. Because if other people are sinners, then uh, you can feel justified in punishing them for it. You can feel justified for exercising power over them, uh, controlling their lives, because if they're left uh, to their own devices, then they're going to commit all kinds of sins. And otherwise, inculcating guilt in people and demanding their sacrifice and their renunciation as expiation for that guilt. Uh, and th I mean, this is something you see early on in Augustine's own thinking about this, that he's, he's living in a period in the Roman Empire where the church, the Catholic Church is uh, struggling for power uh, politically, it's struggling for power versus rival churches like the, the Donatist churches in North Africa, and it, they need money, they need funding, and uh, the more that uh, Augustine's able to say, you're, you're, you're sinners, you can't earn your way into heaven, you just have to recognize the fact that you're a sinner and expiate your guilt, your, your ever-present regular guilt. Don't think that you can just uh, renounce your wealth like the Pelagians did and purchase your way into heaven. You have to constantly recognize your guilt. That gives him and his church constant and regular power over people. And this is a point that Ayn Rand herself made uh, in uh, her writings on the contemporary church. For, in for instance, in her, her essay uh, of living death uh, against the Catholic proscription against birth control and abortion, where she says one of the ways Catholic um, uh, sexual ethics functions is not on the expectation that Catholics will actually be able to follow this ethic because it's largely impossible. It functions on the expectation that they're going to break it, that they're going to feel guilty, think, that they'll think they can't help but be sinners, and that then gives the church the power over the people, not necessarily materially, but importantly spiritually. It, it gives them the power of knowing they're in a position to erode their followers' self-esteem, which is a very powerful, uh, a very powerful sociological force, and motivating to people of very little self-esteem themselves, who want to see that they've got one over on other people, which is, I think, true of many Catholic priests. Well, let's start to uh, wrap up, Ricardo. I want to start by just recommending some resources that our viewers can use to learn more about some of the topics that we discussed today. A uh, simple place to start is the entry in the Ayn Rand lexicon on original sin. You can read that for free online if you go to bit.ly slash ar hyphen original sin. That's got some of the statements that we quoted from today uh, from uh, Atlas Shrugged from Galt's speech and Atlas Shrugged. We also talked about some of the applications of her critique and how she observed manifestations of original sin in her contemporary culture. We talked about that conservative argument for depravity and her answer to it. And that's something she talks about in her essay, Conservatism and Obituary, which you can find in her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. 
It's also available for free online if you go to bit.ly slash conservatismobit. Uh, you'll see there's also a recording of her reading that essay at the Ford Hall Forum that you can listen to at that same page. One more, sorry, I put them in the wrong order. Uh, yeah, so I'll go back to this one and transition to that. Sorry, it's my fault. One more Ayn Rand resource is the essay Moral Inflation, which Ricardo mentioned, where she talks about the way in which contemporary racial uh, egalitarianism, the left-wing movements, are manifestations of a kind of secular version of the idea of original sin. Now, this one was originally published in the Ayn Rand letter in 1974. It's not available online, but uh, we did release it in a previous newsletter for our donors. So if you go to aynrand.org slash donate uh, and uh, become an ARI member, we can send you a copy of this very insightful essay. One last resource, this time not from Ayn Rand, but uh, an essay that I wrote myself uh, in connection with this idea of how the secular left, too, expresses this religious idea of original sin, an article I published in New Ideal uh, back in January of 2023, The Old Morality of the New Religions. You can find that if you go to bit.ly slash old hyphen morality. Some other announcements about uh, things coming up on New Ideal next week on New Ideal. We will be doing another one of our Q&A episodes. Uh, we've started doing these topically, and the topic of this Q&A episode will be ethics and the objectivist virtues. So if you have a question about Ayn Rand's view of ethics, which is, of course, the view that is the opposition to this idea of original sin we talked about today, send us an email. Send us an email to newideal at aynrand.org. If you've got questions on that topic, we'll be reviewing all the questions that come in and highlighting, the, uh, highlighting and answering the most interesting of them. Next week, Thursday, that'll be a discussion led by uh, Dan Schwartz and Zima Um We will probably send you an answer to your question, even if we don't do it on air, so please consider sending whatever is on your mind. If you liked today's episode, uh, please be sure to subscribe to our channel on YouTube. Hit that bell button to get notifications for when we post new content or when we go live again. If you're watching the recording, uh, please be sure to like it, comment on it, to share it with people. This helps optimize the algorithm in our favor so that more and more people uh, subscribe to the channel and, and become aware of the content that we provide. And last of all, if you have another question that you'd like to us that you would like to us to discuss on another episode, maybe not one of the ethics Q and A's, but uh, some subject entirely different, send us an email to the same address, newideal at einrand.org. We look at all the email that comes in. We answer most of the questions we get. Sometimes we do do topics that people suggest. So um, that wraps us up today. So thanks very much, Ricardo. Uh, thanks for joining us for, this, you, uh, for, the, for the first one. Uh, we're glad to have had you. Hope to see you again in the future. Thank thanks, everyone. Goodbye, everyone. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. 
This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.